Playback on RTE Radio 1. Sponsored by FexcoCurrency.com. Your route to great rate travel money at participating credit unions. Hello, good morning. August Fulch is Stockholm Playback. Good morning to you all. Coming up on this week's show, Ryan Tuberty faces the politicians. So please bear with me. My aim today is to help correct and clarify some very serious matters. New RTDG Kevin Backhurst lays out his stall. What I'm ambitious for is that RT remains able to deliver its public service remit, but able to deliver programming that is relevant and enjoyed by people across this island. And later in the programme, Derville MacDonald takes us down memory lane. My memory, Malachi, of camping in France and Spain when I was younger was a car full of bored teenagers, sleeping bags, <laughs> and also the boot being full of vacuum-packed Irish meats. But first, the ongoing troubles at RT and yes, another week of Arachthus committee hearings, invoices, barter accounts, reputations, truths, seven untruths, underwriting, reviews and documents, and is it Renault or Reynolds? You'd be forgiven at this stage for being lost in, as Ryan Tuberty called it. Fog of confusion. The politicians too at the end of a big week were, as Labour's Alan Kelly called it. And it's actually now more confusing than it ever was. I've gone through every documentation up and down, in and out. And Tom Lyons from The Currency, who has covered every twist and turn of this story, told Philip Boucher Hayes on Friday that, by his count, at this point, we have... There's certainly six ongoing investigations slash reviews into RTE that I can count. Even Brian Stanley from Sinn Féin, chairman of the PAC, admitted to Cormac O'Hara on drive time that a piece they'd build for later on in the show about grey hair had him interested. The first thing to say, Cormac, is, is that your item that's up later on on what turns your hair grey, I'll, listen- I'll, I'll, listen- <laughs> I'll, I'll, be, I'll be listening to that very carefully, I can assure you. <laughs> Won't we all, Quite Brian, I can tell you. But back to Tuesday and the extraordinary sight of one of the country's most famous presenters facing the powerful Public Accounts Committee. People tuned in to hear the man at the heart of this story, Ryan Tuberty, speaking to politicians at two Rochdas committee hearings. And as we speak, the committee chair, Brian Stanley, is going through the rules for the committee members and for the witnesses. He's directing members about what they're allowed to ask Ryan Tuberty and Noel Kelly. We're just awaiting the opening statements. We'll go live to them the moment that they start. He starts at 11am with a statement to the members of the pack, as heard on Claire Byrne. I've come here, as, as you know, voluntarily because I believe in the work that you as a committee are doing. The result of this is that I've become the face of a national scandal. I've been accused of being complicit, deceitful and dishonest. I think the statement of June the 22nd was very unhelpful in this regard. I take full responsibility for not asking more questions back on January the 20th, 2021, when the figures for that 2017, 18 and 19 were released. But it has become abundantly clear and obvious in the last three weeks. This highlights the existence of two RTEs, they chose to hurriedly issue deeply, deeply damaging statement on June 22nd, which failed to include the full facts. I am hopeful that they will see from my statement and my appearance here today that I am determined to inform them of the truth and to demonstrate that I have nothing to hide. His agent, Noel Kelly, who joined him throughout the day, had this to say. The controversy over the past few weeks has been damaging to RTE, but it's also been hugely damaging to Ryan Tuberty, to myself and to my own business. And so it began. It gripped many of us right through Tuesday with people watching and listening at home and on big screens across the country. While Ryan and Noah's opening statements were described as blistering, the two committees questioning them were as tough back on them. Here's just a flavour of some of the exchanges we heard right through that Tuesday from the appearances both at PAC and the media committees. I am putting contention to you that there was a stalling in the contract. This was the sweetener to make sure that this contract was signed and it got it over the deal. I mean, were you sitting there going, Ryan, look, they're coming with 75 grand. Next 
came to us with this initiative. I can only assume that they wanted to keep one of their biggest sponsors on board. And, and how, you, I, sorry, can yeah. I please finish the question? businessman, you're a negotiator, you look after your clients, that's that your job. There's no issue with that whatsoever. But you had asked them that they underwrite, they confirmed that they were underwriting the agreement, they were putting it through the barter account, you were told not to put a name on it, and you didn't flag that up, you went along. You guys said the people are looking up to you, and they really, really feel that down with you. I don't know, I don't know all these people are rubbing their shoulders and rubbing their hands, because I tell you one thing, if you came to County Loud, it would be the opposite. Stay there, part of clip number nine, this is uh, Verona Morphy, the Independent TD. But is it your view that those untruths were intended to deceive? I would hope that in, in a more positive moment that, it, that that wasn't the case, that this is a misunderstanding rather than an intent to deceive. There was no secret. There is no secret. There was no secret. We simply acted under instructions from RTA. How did Ryan do? Became the question on Wednesday morning across the country. Brian O'Connell was out with his microphone to get this reaction. I think uh, Ryan is kind of in the right and I kind of think it's RT's fault, to be honest with you. So what you heard today, did it change your opinion in any way? Completely changed my opinion in the rain, 100%. I would say more of RT, to be honest. Realistically, like he, his salary is being controlled by someone else. I'll just ask some people about the Ryan Tuberty today at the Oireachtas Committee. Oh, what did yeah. you think of him? The opinion was that he was always overpaid anyway. I thought he felt sounded very self-serving, self-pitying. Yeah, I, he said one thing today that he's had an awful three weeks or whatever and that's grand for him to say but if you were paid, say, the difference of his salary, you're in a different position if you have to pay rent. On Liveline, callers as ever, talk to Joe. And they won't let Noel Kelly give the, the detailed information because to me they just want to hang Ryan Tuberty out to dry. There seems to be nothing new coming out as schemes twisting everything about. I was glad that Tuberty went on this morning and was able to put his side of the case. The money trail, money always leaves a trail after it. Who's paying who? Nobody seems to know. There isn't clarity over this um, 75000 still. And there seems to be this detachment from what's the right thing to do and what has been done. Then Hugh Linehan from the Irish Times had this assessment on Morning Ireland. Ryan Tuberty and Noel Kelly made a very strong case that they had not received fair treatment from RTE in the weeks since this story first broke. And on the face of it, the documentation they provided does seem to contradict previous reports. Questions definitely need to be answered about that. Plus, I mean, I was quite taken aback, really, by the, the way in which they described RTE had handled this issue of the 120,000 excess, or theoretically excess, between 27 and 2019. On the face of it, that seems like very slipshod accounting, throwing Ryan Tuberty under the bus. How it all panned out over the course of the entire hearings was maybe more of a mixed bag. Mm, was there an element of good cop, bad cop about the two? Yes, there was. And I suppose that's not a surprise. You know, they're playing into their particular persona. The initial reviews are in and some are quite critical and quite cynical of that sort of, please think of the children, doubt that he's been under, you know, terrible emotional pressure and strain over the last few weeks. And we should always have a, an element of human sympathy there. I did find it a little bit hard to take that somebody who's making half a million pounds a year does not have a little bit more oversight over and control over their contractual arrangement. There is an argument that this is out of scale. Uh, I saw a report in, in the Irish Times yesterday, actually, where somebody was in a pub talking to people there watching it on the telly and some American tourists were taken aback at the absolute fascination with this, given the sums of money involved, which they obviously thought were, were pretty puny. Whether we've just blown this thing out of proportion, I think it'll take a little while to figure out what, you know, what the, what the reaction really is to this. Then on Wednesday, more RT executives were at Leinster House as they were amongst the contributors called in to discuss GAA Go and other issues. 
Barry Lennon was summing it all up in studio with Sarah McInerney for Drive Time. And the charge by TDs throughout the afternoon at this hearing was that RTE and the GAA were cherry picking the best games and so put behind a paywall at €12 a game, encapsulated by this exchange between Fenagel TD for Mayo, Alan Dillon, and the Orge Sturahor of the GAA, Tom Ryan. Yeah, the concerns from many fans is that yes. prominent games, the plum ties, the Limerick Clares, the Kerry Mayos have now been put on Saturday. Well, I think it's a little bit unfair. The games that are at the, the really crunch end of both championships, they're on RTE and they're free to air. RTE's head of sport, Declan McBennett, said he wanted Kerry Tyrone, the plum quarterfinal, two weeks ago uh, on RTE, but because it was fixed on the opposite day to the other plum tie, Dublin and Mayo, then it was put behind the paywall. However, Alan Dillon, the former Mayo footballer, he went in studs up on this controversy in recent weeks. I have accused uh, RTE of acting in a cartel-like manner. Correct. The GEA, and, yep. and I'll stand over it. Are you not cherry-picking uh, the top GEA clashes to drive profit and subscription? No. But then the issue of competition law came up and ultimately commercial director of Croke Park, Peter McKenna, GEA Go, didn't have approval from the competition watchdog to show games in Ireland. We are, we are currently in discussions with the uh, CCPC. And not for the first time in recent weeks, Imelda Munster clashed with an RTE executive, this time Declan McBennett. My understanding of it is that the CCPC have been kept up to date in relation to everything that has been done by GAA Go. But they gave clearance initially on the basis that, that is correct. for the diaspora. Clearance has not been formalised with regard to the CCPC. So you're operating without clearance? It's easy to say yes. Yeah, but equally the CCPC have been kept up to date with every but aspect of what GAA Go is doing. And then on Thursday, in a kind of political Lanigan's ball, RTE executives were back at Leinster House and their rebuttals and clarifications on Tuesday's claims were also robust. The new uh, Director General of RTE, Kevin Backhurst. RTE has laid itself open to criticism and I'm quite thick-skinned and I think that some of the criticism they made that I heard, um, was it justified? I think some of it was justified, yes. Some of it was justified. Would there be consequences? I don't want to say there'll be consequences. It's not about a punishment thing. This is about doing the right and fair thing for the future of RTE and the future of Ryan Tuberty. And, you know, I don't want to rush into that in the next hours or couple of days. I think we need to take time to get that proper, properly done and to be fair to Mr Tuberty but do the right thing for RTE. All of the committee members were really angry at how late RTE provided documents to the committee. This happened with uh, Noel Kelly and Brian Tuberty as well. They use these documents to formulate some of their questions. Here's Alan Kelly of Labour on the issue. Like I've had six or seven members of the media on to me in the last 20 minutes saying we've had these documents for a good while. The email of the 25th of April hasn't been received. This is the email of the 25th, which I read out today, Chair. Yeah. Yes, I would apologise that that has been brought today. OK, yeah, but it's, yeah, it's like saying, you know, you provide a car and you forgot the engine. Like, it's a pretty, pretty critical component. If an FOI officer did this inside an estate organisation, it'd be a big issue. Marco Cahasi, uh, the Green Party TD, wondered about the anonymised invoices. RTE Interim Deputy uh, Director General uh, Adrian Lynch. There is no evidence on this file to allow me to say what was discussed. Was there a conversation between the two of them? But I would agree with you, Deputy. The email clearly says, as discussed. You heard there the expulsion of air uh, from Marco Cahasi and uh, I think that gives a flavour of some of the exchanges today. The committees themselves came under the spotlight throughout the week too, with Seamus Dooley from the NUJ saying on Monday's Morning Ireland that... He also has the complexity of dealing with 
five or six investigations and parliamentary committees, you know, some of whom are diligent in their work and some of them seem to think that they're part Judge Judy, part Simon Cowell. Mick Clifford from the Irish Examiner and Grony Nier from PA Media gave their assessment to Philip on Friday's programme. This was the week in which Ireland saw people in pubs watching Oroctus Committee <laughs> proceedings, if you can imagine it. What would they have learned about Oroctus Committees as a way to get to the truth? They would have learned it is not a very good instrument. It has the potential to be so. But unfortunately, we have a scenario. This thing about RT and Ryan Tuberty is an obvious example. Why there needs to be two separate uh, committees inquiring into it, asking more or less the same questions, even though nominally their briefs are for different areas. There is neither rhyme nor reason to the questioning. Now, out of that, some members of those committees do ask very relevant questions, forensic in their approach to it. Others simply are not. It's all over the shop. What should be done in any scenario like this, in my opinion, is if you have a situation, take the one even at hand, you get some form of an investigator to do an outline report on it. The committee view this in private and they decide among themselves, you take A, I'll take B, you take C, etc. And that. Was there not a huge value, though, in which the speed with which an Oroctus committee was able able to respond to an emerging crisis and conduct its affairs in public in front of the public. In front of the public, absolutely. In terms of the speed, at 8.30am on Tuesday, a book of documents landed. The parliamentarians were expected to get their heads around that and formulate questions in an organised fashion in less than two hours. There is good work done there, but it's it's a mishmash. There's the good, the bad and the ugly in there, to be honest. There definitely was a mixed bag. We did get a lot of information, sometimes because of the hard work of TDs, sometimes despite the type of questioning. A lot of the time, you know, a question was asked, which was a good question, and the person wasn't given a chance. And as a journalist, you're sitting there and you're going, let them answer the question. So we have their response to that on record. And then there were other points where the question would be three minutes long. Keep it short, keep it precise, go in with a scalpel, get as much information on the public record for people watching committees and pubs as you possibly can. In some instances, there were some brilliant performers. In other areas, it was quite frustrating. New DG Kevin Backhurst. Morning, Kevin. Shameless. He was out in front and centre all week and he had this to say to Gavin Jennings on the News at One. Well, we have to re-establish trust and we have to re-establish belief in RTE. I hope that that I and the new interim leadership team will be judged by our actions. It's not going to be today or tomorrow But there is an urgency here. You know, I'm impatient to change the culture here. I'm impatient to change our perception with audiences and with staff. But is your vision that RT will continue to be funded by both licence fee and by commercial revenue? For the moment, I think that's the only practical solution. I mean, you know, if the government wants to come up with an alternative solution, then clearly that that will be a matter for them. We'll discuss with them. But what I'm ambitious for is that RT remains significant size, able to deliver its public service remit, but able to deliver programming that is relevant and appreciated and enjoyed by people across this island. We will leave this last assessment on all this to Tom Lyons. There is a considerable body of work to be done. Indeed. Excellent time for a break, I think. Arash, again, couple of nomad. Full to rush. Well, it's that time of year where you start to dream of going to exotic places. Paris, New York. Sorry, couldn't resist. There was a real 80s music nostalgia buzz across Radio 1 this week. From Ray Darcy's studio to Miriam on Sunday. Lead singer with Ultravox and co-writer of the second biggest selling single in UK chart history, Do They Know It's Christmas? 
Midjur, the man from Ultrabox, joined Miriam on Sunday and was just one of those great, great interviewees, full of the chats and the stories. And he started by telling Miriam about his childhood and how influential his parents were in his success. Working class background, I was born in a tenement slum on the outskirts of Glasgow. One bedroom, flat, no heating, you know, all of that stuff. My father was a van driver, older brother and younger sister and parents all stayed in this one little place. And we had a, a thing called a cavity bed, which I, I'm not sure you had in Ireland. No. You probably did. A cavity bed was like a hole in the wall in the sitting room. And these cavity beds were where your parents would sleep. So it had a mattress in there and it would have either wooden shutters or uh, a curtain. So we all kind of lived there till I was 10. So I used to be able to draw a guitar long before I could play one. <laughs> and I played my poor parents to get me a guitar and they bought me a secondhand guitar when I was 10 years old, which cost half my dad's wages. So it was fairly basic, but a good upbringing. I had read that, that your dad spent half his weekly wage at that time to buy you that first guitar. I assume you're eternally grateful for that. I, I still have the guitar. It's one of the objects, you know, when they, you know, mm. when you get asked questions about if your house caught fire tomorrow, what would you grab? <laughs> say, well, once I've grabbed the family, I'll grab that guitar because it's the one that, that means uh, so much to me. Midge, we're on first name terms now. So my good friend Midge went on to explain how while his dad sorted out the guitar, his mammy set him on the road. Ah, the mammies. But my dad, when he came back from the war, he used to drive tank transporters or whatever it was, and he had no discernible skills. So he instilled in us that, you know, should get a trade, you know, mm. be a mechanic or an engineer, because that was quite a few steps up the, the ladder from where he was. And that meant well, you'd earn a decent living and you could, you know, keep a family. And, and it was a job for life. My older brother was an engineer at Rolls-Royce and I got a, an engineering apprenticeship. But I was playing in bands at weekends. By the time I got to 18, which is only halfway through the apprenticeship, I was given the offer of joining a full-time, fairly well-known band in Scotland. And I left that decision to my parents. And my father, I could see cringing in the corner, thinking, oh, don't do it, don't do it, don't do it. And my mother, who ruled the roost, uh, just said, follow your heart. And that was it. I was off. <laughs> Wasn't that so great she did that? Amazing. You know, this this was the job mm. that they had hoped, that, you know, all the lives that I'd be able to get. And here's me walking away from it to go and strap my guitar on. It must have been petrifying for them. Midge played with Tim Lizzie on the way, but his song Vienna was the real unexpected breakout hit for him. As he went on to tell Miriam, although warning, younger ears mightn't understand phone box, please explain it to them. And Vienna, that beautiful single. I'm still amazed. I mean, that was only released, isn't this right, as the third single. I think you've said nobody in their right mind would have thought it would be a single. Why not? Because it is so beautiful. Well, you have to understand the parameters that radio had at the time. The singles were two, two and a half minutes long. We just wrangled with them back and forth about not wanting to edit it. And they finally succumbed and said, OK, you know, put it out, it's four minutes long. And luckily, radio played it. Was it an amazing surprise then for you all, look, tracking that song's progress on the charge? Yes, it was weird because I was living in a flat in, in London at the time with no telephone. And I used to have to go down to the telephone box at the end of the road and stick in my 50p or whatever it was and phone up the office to find out, you know, how's the record doing today? You'd phone up and they'd say, well, you shipped another 30,000 albums last night. And you'd say, what? I'm standing here counting out my pennies <laughs> in a phone box and you're telling me we're selling 
on all these records. This is crazy because you don't see the royalties for a long, long time. So you're feeling great all of a sudden, kind of successful in your, your own terms, but you haven't got enough money to get, to get in the underground <laughs> to go to rehearsals the next day. Over in Ray Darcy, he was also on a pop music nostalgia blast as he welcomed solicitor turned music impresario Philip Marr into studio. I've been going to festivals for 30 odd years. Just myself and a couple of friends noticed the last five years that a lot of festivals weren't geared towards the older 35 plus <laughs> and went to a couple of festivals last year and it felt on the Tuesday afterwards that I had climbed Crow Patrick four or five times. Philip explained that he missed his 80s and 90s music so much that he and his friends have set up Forest Fest. We said we'd sit down and maybe put together a package that would cater for people that were primarily over 30 with families but you know wanted uh, better facilities easier to get into get out of and uh, just make it more accessible and, and easier for people so that's what that's what we've done and Ray was loving it busting some serious 80s moves in studio I'd say your your 16 year old 17 year old self is really excited these are the ones you listen to absolutely and, and now you're, you're on the phone to them yeah I'm like a kid in a candy shop <laughs> I'm looking at the lineup. Friday night James sit down Nick Kershaw oh wow jeez yeah. Peter Hook and the light Joy Division now that's a big get isn't it absolutely that's one in particular that I'm really looking forward to Sister Sledge come on just let me stay for had lost the music as you say yep their disco boots on and so forth in a big country a big, again one of my absolute favourite bands from being a kid like their poster was up on my wall when I got to do this I said big country first on the team really, I'm, I'm motivated by my own taste effectively right. so you're going I'm a 54 year old solicitor with a dodgy hairline I can, yeah. I can say that because I, I, <laughs> I have one too and I hope that you enjoy the same music as I do that's <laughs> basically it and if you look at the list I think broad spectrum of stuff so we have great acts yeah. Suzanne Vega is there as well You know, how do you get these people? It's about relationships. Do they sort of stand aside, look at you for a year and then decide if they're going to do it or not? Yeah, and you've hit the nail on the head. Last year, we did it at a very, very high standard and people that knew an awful lot more this industry than I do told me to do everything really, really well the first year and that would then open some doors to talk to other people this year. And you've a second stage this year. Yeah, we've actually got four stages, but one of the four stages is the Forest Fla, just shine a light on the best of up-and-coming traditional music, but also Legends like Sharon Shannon, Paul Brady, Stockton's Wing. That's going to be just this centre of great crack and I think it's going to get a bit crazy in there to be honest with you. But anyway. Uh. <laughs> Here we go, Philip. Proclaimers on the Friday night. Ray in his happy place. Okay, boomer. But is Ray actually a boomer? Or is he more Gen X? Africa O'Connell on The Business with Richard Kern gave me cause for some serious soul searching about intergenerational office types. Generally speaking, there are four and in some cases five different generations all sharing the same workplace. I mean, I think I'm a young, carefree soul in our office. You know, a casual millennial type. But I do like a well-written email. So... 
So we have the silent generation between 1925 and 1945. They're probably coming, I would say, to the end of their careers, I would say, if they're still working. You baby boomers born between 1946 and 1964, Gen X, 1965 and 1980, millennials, 1981 to 2000, and Gen Z, born between and consider it policy. Gen X tend to communicate via email. They believe that the person with the best skills and most experience should make the decisions. Oh, naive idealists. Naive idealists. Gen Y, or more commonly known as millennials, I am one of those. They're the first generation to grow up in a world of technology. They like to communicate, I like to communicate, via text, other forms of social media. And Gen Z are the ones born after 2001. They use TikTok, Snapchat, Instagram, worst thing in the world is for them to get a phone call. And are they the people who use their thumbs? On exactly. The, on the text? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> of There's an interesting example of how this is playing out. Uh, we, we have a clip here of a 25-year-old New Zealand politician, Chloe Swarbrick, and she's dismissing a heckler in Parliament. In the year 2050, I will be 56 years old. Yet, right now, the average age of this 52nd Parliament is 49 years old. OK, boomer. Okay, boomer. It's it's an insult, is it? So if you've spent any time on social media over the last couple of years, you will have seen a lot of activity around the hashtag okay boomer. It's kind of become a catch-all phrase for somebody who is seen as older, resistant to change. Which is why the silent generation uh, are silent because they're not on social media. That's why they're called the silent generation. They're staying out of this and they're dead right. So for instance, millennials, in articles written about them, people will say, boomers particularly, that millennials are obsessed with avocado toast and if we could only give it up, how many houses could we buy? The list is endless, right? Is there an opportunity here for one of the older groupings like myself to try to be cool by adopting some of the mannerisms of the younger generation? No, because if you do that, Richard, you're going to be seen as cringe, unfortunately. (laughs) The good thing that we will all, you know, comfort ourselves with is the fact that Gen Alpha is coming up next, born post-2020 and soon Gen Z and Millennials are going to know exactly what it is to be as old and cringe as the boomers. They'll have another group to fight with on social media. While I chew over that and play with the numbers, the fact that I like a clearly written structured email probably tells me the real truth. But then later I tuned into drive time. This was not good for my nerves. Sending emails is something most people do on a daily basis, sometimes multiple times an hour. But what if you send it to the wrong person? Sarah went on to discuss this office nightmare and the stakes are high. Well, the misdirected email is remarkably common. 40% of workers in the US and the UK recently emailed the wrong person. A surprising 20% claim to have lost their job as a result. Oh, great. Another thing to keep us awake at night. We're joined on the line now by Louisa Meehan, who is a HR and dispute resolution expert with Woodview HRM. We've all done it. And you press send. We have. You still can go in to your email settings and recall an email. But I have found in the last couple of years that if that happens, doesn't really come back to you. So what do you do if you've sent an email with some helpful input or insights to the wrong person? Just asking for a friend, of course. So you need to own up to it quickly. Contact the person and ask them to delete the email. It tends to be the quick things that we're doing or the things that we're doing Mm. when we may be upset about something, shall we say. But what about the angry rant, you know, that you might send, for example, about another colleague? Write what you need to write. Don't 
send it for at least 24 hours. And well, feel hang that you need on. To send it. You're, being, you're getting it. yourself uh, an easy way out here. We're asking you about, <laughs> about emails that have been sent. Not Let's say, Louisa, I'm writing a, uh, an email to you. I write, yes. that's Sarah McInerney. is so useless. And she's so mean to people as well. And I send it to <laughs> Sarah McInerney. <laughs> ah! If you're in the office, physically go over and say, I'm really sorry. Didn't mean for that to go to anybody. Please forgive me if you can't pick up the phone and ring them. So whatever the most personable way of contacting the person is. Could I ring Sarah and say, did you get my joke, Sarah? Probably not. And I think if you try to pretend that it's something that it isn't, you're going to get in more trouble. Hold your hands up and say, look, I was having a bad minute. That's not how I feel all the time. In that moment, I was really upset about X, Y or Z. Please forgive me. But the problem is, if you're doing that, it's probably because the person has really annoyed you. Probably. But because you've written it down and had the rant and sent the rant to the wrong person, suddenly it doesn't matter what you're angry about. It's mm. irrelevant. Exactly. <laughs> Office stress. No wonder we're all looking forward to running out the door this summer and hitting the road. I mean, the sun must be shining somewhere. Well, I can tell you I'm actually in Mount Shannon and it's blue skies here down in Mount Shannon, so it is. So, yeah, we've been very lucky this week. Oh, fantastic. And listen, I know you're out uh, with your wife and your daughter, Iski, in your camper van yep. rocking around. Cooking Van Supremo and author of the Camping Soul Food cookbook, Malachy Duggan, joined Derville MacDonald on Saturday. And while he was driving his camper van through Ireland, Derville was driving down memory lane with the family car boot packed with, yeah, we'll bring our own food, thanks very much. My memory, Malachy, of camping in France and Spain when I was younger was a car full of bored teenagers, sleeping bags, <laughs> when the zips gets too hot and they'll be burning the leg off you. And also this memory of the boot being full of vacuum-packed Irish meats as if <laughs> consuming meat overseas was something my family could not countenance. Has life moved on since then? Have you ever seen Bear Grylls in Connemara? <laughs> And he's like, if I don't cross this river in the next 48 hours, I'm going to go, Bear, there's a gala in Tully and there's a fine ham and cheese sandwich in there to rack, like, you know, you're going to be okay, Bear. Don't worry about it. And I never knew where my parents got the vacuum packed meat. We never had it yeah, yeah, <laughs> any other yeah. time in no. our lives, but but it was yeah, as if yeah. the world was going to end if we didn't get no, super value no. sausages. When we started, we probably would have just thought, like, pasta pesto would be the extent of what we could cook. I mean, like, like we're not chefs or Bear grills, but, you know, it's just, we love cooking outdoors with friends you know so a lot of it is kind of covered surprise you know you look and see what you have if you're cooking an onion outdoors it feels like you're a chef you know you're doing more than just pouring the sauce into <laughs> into pasta and then on thursday's live line another man who's no stranger to the road and uh, glenn hansard is on the line glenn good afternoon how are you joe lovely to talk Do you know that's what i love about live line the whole country gets to hear someone speak about a very very personal story it's gorgeous how long is it since your own mum passed? Yeah, it's three years and actually, ironically, it was her birthday yesterday and ah. she died on the 14th and yeah. she got cremated and her sisters are all like, we want somewhere to go visit her. Oh, she's on the mantelpiece yeah, in my brother's yeah. house and, yeah, and they're yeah. not happy at all. So, <laughs> she's going up to Mount Jerome beside me dad, yeah. Singer and songwriter Glenn Hansard was joining in the conversation that Joe's been having for the last few days about musical theatre. But he was a little bit distracted at the start of the interview. Uh, Glenn, you've become a dad. I've become a dad. Christy's here in my arms and he's, he's listening to the phone. He's amazing. Ten months old. Christy. Oh. That's, a, that's not a bad singing voice. <laughs> Bertner's, Bertner's, <laughs> Bertner's outfits at that age. <laughs> a lot would argue, you're right. Well, OK, I'm conscious of, of Christy on your... By the way, who's he called after? Well, I named him after my friend Mick Christopher. Um, ah, you know, but of ah. course, there's a bit of Christy Moore and there's a bit of Christy Dignam, of yeah, course. Yeah. And it's just a real Dublin name. We wanted to give him a Dublin name. Ah, what a gorgeous name. Well, Sinead for Kuplanomad, Bamid Arash. Fultish Dacharish.
In this week that marks the annual commemorations for the 12th of July, Claire Byrne invited two guests to discuss their views on what does the 12th mean in 2023 on Wednesday's programme. Now overnight effigies and posters of nationalist politicians were placed on bonfires. Well with me now to discuss the significance of the 12th are writer and political commentator Sarah Creighton and Claire Hanna who is the SDLP MP for South Belfast. Here's a flavour of what they had to say about the significance of the state for them and their communities. Obviously, the headline is those effigies and the message that leaves with children and young people, posters, things that absolutely can't be justified. It's hard to have a wider worldview of tolerance and coexistence if if the adults around you are are cheering and celebrating that. But it is also worth acknowledging that not all bonfires do this. Not all of those uh, attending are probably doing so in hate. There are people pushing back against that and who take part for tradition and culture. A lot of the people taking part in bands and marches today but there is a fairly toxic core that seemed to be determined to drive confrontation. Sarah in your experience has the 12th become quieter in in recent years? It absolutely has. It used to be a day you know we would just have to sit in the house and I remember you know the roads would be barricaded around the area because of riots and violence. It is much much quieter now but as Claire has said you know there's still a lot of work to do. I think that the police really do need to take this very very seriously and I think people really don't have a lot of faith in the police that the police are going to prosecute that are going to take action against this and as Claire says not everybody in this day and age goes to celebrate the 12th for that reason but it is part and parcel of that and I think really to tackle these things unionist politicians they have to do more to step up and tackle this. And why do you think there is a reluctance there if you believe there is on the on the PSNI side? You can't talk about this we're talking about paramilitary involvement the police have to be very careful how they handle these situations they don't want to make these situations worse. I think there's a lot of tip joined around these paramilitary gangs and I, I think the frustration that people have really is that these gangs are still in existence. Part of the reason, of course, is the fact that we still have a lot of poverty in Northern Ireland, drugs, that type of thing. So it's a very complicated issue. But I think people just wish that the police were able to take more action. But Perhaps, Sarah, this is a celebration of culture and it's difficult for the police to interfere in that. I don't think you can call burning a tricolour cultural expression. You can call burning effigies of of politicians like Michelle O'Neill a cultural expression. It is just hate and bigotry. I don't think anybody really believes that this is actually culture. And I think anybody who says that is lying. For the leader of the DUP, Geoffrey Donaldson, meanwhile in Morning Ireland, Angus Cox was asking for his reaction. What happened in burning the flag uh, of our neighbouring state and burning the uh, poster of Leo Varadkar was wrong and uh, it is disrespectful. If people want to earn respect and have respect for their own identity and culture, then they've got to show respect for others. And I don't think that these uh, things that were burned on the bonfire are right. And I think that's the view of the overwhelming majority of unions. And there were more reflections on the North too, with Sunday Miscellany at the Belfast Book Festival. And it's uh, a ballad-like account of a girl growing up here in the town. The poem begins in 1970, the year I was born. Dairy poet Colette Bryce wrote a moving piece about her family life and going by her age. It's hard not to picture those familiar Dairy Girls faces from the TV drama as part of the backdrop to Colette's work with the bittersweet joke about Jesus Christ himself and the stark realities of growing up during those turbulent times all part of her writing. Dairy, I was born between the Craigan and the Bogside to the sounds of crowds and smashing glass by the river foil with its suicides and riptides. I thought that city was nothing less than the whole and rain-domed universe. A teacher's daughter, I was one of nine faces afloat in the looking glass fixed in the hall, but which was mine, I wasn't ever sure. 
We walked to school linked hand in hand, in twos and threes like paper dolls. We'd crossed the border in our red cortina, searched by a teenager, drowned in a uniform, cumbered with a gun, who seemed to think we were trouble on the run and not the Von Trapp family singers, <laughs> harmonising every song in rounds to pass the journey quicker. My candle flame faltered in a cup. We were stood outside the barracks in a line, chanting in rhythm, calling for a stop to strip searches for the Armagh women. The proof that Jesus was a dairyman, 33, unemployed and living with his mother, the old Joe Graham. Boom, we'd jump at another explosion, windows buckling in their frames. At next, you could view the smouldering omission in a row of shops, the missing tooth in a street. Jerry Adams' mouth was out of sync in the goldfish bowl of the TV screen, our dubious link with the world. Each summer, one by one, my sisters upped and crossed the water, armed with a grant from the government, the butler system's final flowers, until my own turn came about. I watched that place grow small before the plane ascended through the cloud, and I could not see it clearly anymore. There was more focus too on Northern Irish artists on Arena on Tuesday as Sean Rocks welcomed Dr Caroline Campbell into studio. The National Gallery of Ireland and the Royal Hibernian Academy have always had close ties and now an exhibition at the gallery focuses on female artists in the last 100 years who are members of the RHA. The show is called It Took a Century. Dr Campbell spoke with great enthusiasm about her new job as head of the gallery. Who took up that role at the end of last year and it's the first time we've spoken since then. So you're very welcome, uh, Caroline, and congratulations <laughs> on the post. Thank you very yeah. much. I'm thrilled to be here this evening and I'm <laughs> thrilled to be at the National Gallery, a place I first visited as a teenager in the late 80s from Belfast. Yeah, we can get a hint of the Belfast action. <laughs> a wee action. bit of a hint. <laughs> <laughs> it, it's, it's, it's still there. It's still there. For, Dr Campbell went on to give us a whistle-stop tour of some of the underclaimed artists featured in this exhibition being hosted at the National Gallery. You see such diversity of approaches, of attitudes. It's a really wonderful exhibition. I saw it for the first time. I was really, really moved because at the time that this exhibition starts in 1923, it was really pretty difficult for women to be working as artists. Mm. What was the attitude and I even ha- I hate having the fact that for for the purposes of this discussion, uh, I have to say female or woman artist. You know, I know these artists. Let's refer these to the, these these fifty nine artists. How big a deal was it for the groundbreakers? Well, interesting. Sarah Purser, who's the first elected woman member of the RHA in 1923, she's made an honorary member in, I think, 1890. There was no constitution for allowing women to be elected at that time, so they they couldn't get around it any other way. And the great thing about Sarah Purser now is that this year we'll have a show devoted specifically to her at the National Gallery later on in the year. Mm. She's a wonderful portraitist, but she's a wonderful capturer of life. Let's go on. On to another of the artists, Hilda van Stuckum, if I'm saying her name correctly, well, <laughs> or Hilda, something Hilda like that. Hilda van Stuckum was the best friend, in her words, of Evie Hone, the great Irish painter yeah. and stained glass artist, who's also represented in the exhibition. She was born in the Netherlands. She was half Irish. And I love this picture of her friend Evie Hone. Evie Hone at work in her studio. Exactly. And she's at her table, sitting in a very special chair, which was probably to help her back. Mm. She was very arthritic, Evie Hone, we know by this stage in her her life and in perhaps my favourite detail her dog can you see it yeah. there's a ball in front of the dog yes. and it's like the dog is saying come on stop yeah, working come on, stop come working and throw the ball for me please and if this sounds like it could float your boat the exhibition runs until October for free which is always good to know now another form of art could be 
fake tan on bed sheets in a Tracy Emin way? Or am I pushing my luck with that one? Oliver Callan spoke to one man who's on a mission to help the battle against the fake tan stains. Now, I was reading the Evening Echo here this morning and uh, there's an amazing story about inventor Patrick McNamee who's behind Tan Off and it's specially formulated. It's going to eliminate fake tan stains from white bed linen, which is the bane of many, many lives. Patrick McNamee is on the phone from Cork. Good morning, Patrick. Good morning, Oliver. Yes, yes, he did just say that. The inventor of colour catcher. Huh. Now you're listening even more closely, I'd say. My son, during COVID times, his friends came to him and said, listen, your dad's in the laundry business. Mm-hmm. How can stains out of bed linen? So we decided, I came out of retirement then, and um, we started playing around with different formulas. And through trial and error, we got it to work with the help of Jack's friends. Very good. And you, you're the man behind Colour Catcher. That's a, that's a worldwide phenomenon now, isn't it? Yes, yes. It's a global brand now and owned by Henkel. I think there's over 50, 60 countries worldwide. That's an Irish invention, colour catcher. Never, never. Knew yes, that. yes, we developed in Cork. It's developed in Cork. This is yeah, it's not an Irish invention. It's a Cork invention. Sorry, sorry. Cork invention, very important. My <laughs> yeah. So tan off is going to be the new colour catcher, but for fake tan uh, bed linen. And um, there's a, a jet action spray, so it basically penetrates into the fibres, and you spray it on both sides. We have ingredients in the the formulation that actually lifts the stain first, and then the stain is dissolved by other ingredients. And then it's rinsed away in the wash. When you say you were doing trials at home, who was the guinea pig in this experiment? Yeah, well, Jack volunteered to get a spray tan from head to toe. Oh, wow. um, <laughs> it was some size. He got it done in, in town in the wintertime. Wow. And I had to pick him up after the tanning salon and he walked down to South Mall in his flip-flops and shorts. It was quite, <laughs> quite, a, quite a sight. His background is digital marketing. Um, I'm trying to take more of a back seat and let him do the, the driving. Well, uh, so he goes home then in the fake tan and in, in his flip-flops. So he goes into bed for a week and rolls around the bed. And um, after a while then um, we just take those samples and um, we cut them up and we, we do different trials on different parts. Was, this a, was it a lockdown idea or how did it first come? Yes, out? during COVID times we used to have kind of a movie night and one night we decided, look, we'll have a glass of wine and we'll have a chat and, and this just popped up. We just jumped on it and so it's been it's been very interesting. I've always had a curious mind anyway, so uh, I always want to know how things work and it was a challenge. But there's two types. There's one type which it works on your skin, it reacts with your skin. And then the second one then is like a covering. But the tricky one is the one that actually reacts with your skin. There's yeah. a text from a, a publican here. He says, good morning. Would that stuff work on toilet seats? My heart is broken in the pub here with the fake tan brigade. <laughs> Yes, it does. We've actually got a lot of inquiries about toilet seats. It does work on toilet seats. Yeah, it works. Yeah, we, we do. yeah it works on toilet seats. Uh, you've changed the world, Patrick McNamee. <laughs> Thank you very much. It's the story then with Tan Off, as it's now called. So you fully own that? Yes, yes. Yeah, we own that as well. And it's on sale already? up and running. You'll be rolling out further than nationwide as well. Were there other names that didn't come up like Tanfastic or someone was saying because it, it, it makes the tan come out so come out ye, come out ye feckin' tan would, would, would spring to mind but uh, maybe you wouldn't get away with it. You wouldn't get away with yeah, that. we had, uh, oh yeah, that, that wouldn't go down well. And Jack came up with the idea then of Tan Off which is very simple, very straight message. Well, congratulations, Patrick, and to Jack McNamee as well, the son who uh, who did the heroics. Best of luck with Tan Off. They are coming in wondering um, where it's going to work. You'll try it on anything, says you. Patrick McNamee, thanks a million for chatting to us this morning. And to end on Thursday. Delighted to be joined now in the studio by singer-songwriter Kriya, who some listeners will also know as Karen Cowley of Wyvern Lingo fame. You're so welcome. Thank you so much. This is the title track of the EP called The Callous. Go for it. So... As we come to the end of our lot here, for now I say goodbye, agus salon, agus
Block me from this barren rock, oh. Block me from this barren rock, oh. Hold me in your tan. Mmm, hold me in your tan. And when you see fear, let me drop. Oh, when you see fear, let me drop to float among the callows. Oh, I'll sink into the callows. This loneliness won't let me be, won't cut me free. Instead, it's dragging me behind. And I don't have the strength to fight it. And all the things that make me smile seem so futile. My head is begging me to fix this. But I feel no I feel 